Turn with me to Hosea chapter 1 as we begin our study in the book of Hosea. Hosea has 14 chapters. We'll be in it for several weeks. And we're going to see that it's a very timely book for us to be studying. Today we're just going to be looking at verse 1 as we get the context of this book and understand kind of what's going on in historical context and theological context of the time. Before we read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would help us. We are a people who, on our best days, struggle with your word and understanding it and applying it to our lives and on our worst days rejecting it and wanting to change it for our own words of truth. And so Lord we pray that as we open your word and learn from it that you would change our hearts that we would seek only to worship you and find rest in your merit and not our own. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So one of the major themes of the book of Hosea is love and marriage, and marriage in particular. And uh, Emily and I, having just celebrated 20 years of marriage together, made me think about this idea coming to the book of Hosea and about the concept of love and how that has really changed over the course of my life and my understanding of it. When Emily and I, of course, first began our relationship, the love that we had for one another was very real, right? It was very, very real. It was largely seated in how we felt about one another. Most of you have experienced those feelings that kind of, I don't even know really the word, kind of this gushy kind of love that feels good, is kind of overwhelming almost, like an overwhelming kind of experience all-consuming, mysterious kind of thing. It's almost irrational in a lot of ways because there's no real scientific way to explain it, right, as the science person in me, but it still exists very strongly. And the first few years of marriage, they, this, you know, as they've come and gone, obviously, we're 20 years in, we've brought home a few kids, we've moved around a whole bunch, that feeling that we, that, that strong gushy kind of love feeling is kind of ebbed and flowed, right, as you would expect. And you you think, well, that's not what we expect, right? You don't expect that. As we gave our vows, the love we expressed for one another wasn't just a feeling, though. It wasn't just feelings. It was a commitment through easy times, through hard times. Some of you have given those exact vows to your spouse. Some of you have heard them over and over at weddings. You know those vows. Our love for one another isn't based on how we feel from day to day, but rather on the words that we said to God, that vow to each other and to God. As we start this book of Hosea, we're going to explore this idea of love, and we get to see it in the love that a husband Hosea has for his wife. The love that Hosea has for Gomer, even in the hardest times, is but a glimpse of the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. 
that love that he ultimately demonstrated by sending his only son to deliver us, his people, from sin and death. Before we get into Hosea's marriage, we had to understand what's going on in the world around them. It's very important. As we studied, remember we studied Isaiah. It's very important to understand the political climate of the day and the cultural climate. So, like Hosea, the world around us very much features into our thoughts about love and about marriage, about family, about religion, all of those things. Yet for a Christian, those things aren't informed by the world at all. They're informed by the word of God alone. Hosea has lots to say about how the people of God ought to live in a world that is changing fast and is seemingly out of control, of which we can all relate. So as we dig into this first verse, we're going to consider two main ideas. Loving in a changing world and then loving with a salvation message. And so with that, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Let's look together at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the land, or in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so normally at this point in the sermon, if you haven't figured it out, I have this formula that I follow every week. I'm kind of a formulaic kind of guy. Normally at this point in the sermon, I would give context, right? Well, since most of this sermon is going to be context, I'm only going to mention a few things here. Hosea was a man living in the kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C., so in the B.C. 700s, and his ministry is, may have spanned as much as 60 years. So he was in vocational ministry for as much as 60 years of his life, which is very impressive. His name means God saves, very similar to the names Joshua and even Jesus in Hebrew, having that meaning. He's the only prophet that wrote anything from the northern kingdom during, uh, during this portion of time. He's the only one that did that, and so he gives us a unique perspective, being a, being a prophet from the northern kingdom and uh, in this time of upheaval and difficulty. His contemporaries in the southern kingdom were Isaiah and Micah, and they, you know, we've studied through the book of Isaiah. We will probably get to Micah at some point also, and so those were his contemporaries in Judah. Remember, during this time, this is very important for us to have a grounded perspective in, in Hosea, Israel was split into two kingdoms. There were ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and the city of Samaria was their capital. And two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and Jerusalem was their capital. And so you're going to see those words uh, a lot as we go through this. Hosea's ministry ended sometime before the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile in 722 B.C. by the country of Assyria in his life. Hosea saw Israel at its peak, the northern kingdom at its peak, and he also saw its downfall. And so I think he has a lot to teach us about living in the country that we do now in this time and place. 
That brings us to the first point, loving in a changing world. Let's look again at verse 1. This is the only verse we're looking at today. I'm just going to kind of break it down and look at some of the different parts. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, of whom nothing is really known. This Beeri, uh, other than that, is a northern kingdom kind of name, which is where Hosea was born and did his ministry. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom. But notice here, we are given both the northern kings and the southern kings just to put us in a time and place so that we can understand what's going on. And strangely, all the southern kings are mentioned for Hosea's ministry. And you may read this and you may think, well, Jeroboam must have ruled a really long time. Relative to the other kings that ruled during uh, Hosea's ministry, uh, uh, that's true. But he was not the only king of the northern kingdom during Hosea's life and ministry began under Jeroboam, but he would see six more men rise to power as kings of the northern kingdom, four of which overthrew the previous king by assassination. So you kind of get the idea that this northern kingdom wasn't all that stable. We aren't sure why only one king was mentioned from the north, but it may have to do with the fact that when Jeroboam was in power, Israel was at its peak politically and economically. Jeroboam's story can be found in 2 Kings 14, if you want to read that for your own study. He's widely considered the most successful king in the history of the northern kingdom. And understand when I say success, understand the context that I'm bringing it, he brought back a time of economic prosperity to Israel. He increased their borders as a nation, but there was no moral success at all during Jeroboam's time or during the time of the entire northern kingdom. There wasn't a quote-unquote good king at all to come out of the northern kingdom. We still read that he was a king that did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this evil was very specific, and it's something that you're going to see as refrain in this book if you read through the book of Second Kings. Second Kings 14.24 specifically tells us that he did evil in God's sight, Namely, that he did not turn away from the sin of Jeroboam the first. This is right. Jeroboam the first was the king when the nation divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And he was basically like the point of the spear, so to speak. And so turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. And we're going to get... A little bit of a historical context to understand what's going on here. First Kings 12. So you have two brothers, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Their kingdom is split. Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north. The problem is that in the south you have... Jerusalem, right? And that's the city that has the temple. That's where the worship takes place. And Jeroboam did not want his people going to Jerusalem to worship. And so he came up with a plan. So I'm going to read verses 25 through 30 of 1 Kings chapter 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built P. 
Penuel, and Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people that went as far as Dan to be before one. It's pretty incredible. Behold your gods. And these people went as far as Dan. What does that mean? Well, Dan was pretty far north, about as far north as you can go in the northern kingdom. Bethel, on the other hand, was pretty far south, about as far south. So he put um, religious centers at the north and south so that people could gather together and worship this golden calf, which is a bit nostalgic for the people of Israel, right? This isn't the first golden calf that they've bowed before and worshipped. And this wasn't the first one that they was pointed at and said, Behold your God that brought you up out of Egypt. This is kind of an old hat for the nation of Israel. And he said, You know what? I don't want them to go down to Jerusalem to worship because I wouldn't want them to turn back to their God. And so he made these cows. And it worked. Verse 30, This thing became a sin to the people of Israel to worship baby cows. In fact, as you read through the history books, you will regularly read this idea that they did not turn from the sin of Jeroboam. The question is, do you think God forgets these kinds of things? He doesn't. He doesn't forget anything. Idolatry is an abomination to him. So as we move into Hosea's ministry, during this political and economic boom, it seems as if the northern kingdom is doing as good as they could possibly be doing. Hosea receives a word from the Lord that these times are coming to an end because of the sins of the people. As he puts it in verse 2, the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said, go take for your Self a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why would he do that? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. We're going to learn more about this next week in order to demonstrate the land's infidelity to him. The Lord is going to have Hosea take a wife of whoredom and have children with her. Over the course of Hosea's ministry, he'll witness the fall of Israel. And when they fell, they really fell. Assyria was this nation that was kind of growing up as Hosea started his ministry, but all of a sudden gets really big. And they're going to demand tribute from the northern kingdom. They're going to say, basically, give us all of your money and we'll let you remain a sovereign nation, which destroyed the economy and the politics of the northern kingdom. 
in an attempt to overthrow Assyria, the northern kingdom came up with an idea. They said, well, we're going to get this other nation, Syria, and they're going to join with us, and we're going to join together to take over Assyria, and then we're going to go ask the southern kingdom, our brothers, Judah, to help us. Well, Judah wasn't up for it. And so what did the northern kingdom do? Well, they attacked Judah so that the, because they wouldn't join them. And guess what the southern kingdom did? This is going to sound absolutely crazy. They went and found Assyria and asked Assyria for help, which we kind of covered as we went through Isaiah. It's crazy. Assyria had had enough, so in 722 B.C. they came in, they sacked Samaria, and they scattered the ten, or ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Through all of this, Hosea lived and did ministry, and he saw his once great nation crumble around him because of moral infidelity and political stupidity. Does this sound familiar to you at all? If it does, it's because it's the story of every nation since the first one. They all rise and fall because they all have people who are sinful at the head. It's really easy to make America's fate match up with the fates of other nations because America's not special in that way. We don't get an, ex- we don't get a, an excuse from those nations that do bad things and fall. We don't get a free pass from history. To be sure, I love this country. I love the freedoms that we currently have. I love living here. But it's easy to see, as you look at the short history of our country, that things have changed. With the world changing so much around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, how then should we live? What about... When we take a look around us, when we see nothing but immorality, when we see nothing but discord, shouldn't we just hide and wait for it all to end in some sort of Bible bunker and just wait? Or do we evaluate our commitment to the Lord to love our neighbors as ourselves? It may be true that things don't feel like they used to, right? We don't have that nice, good old-fashioned feeling that we all wish we could just go back to when times, when things made sense, when everything felt a certain way, right? Just talk to certain people. They all long for these days that are just long disappeared. The truth is that there are no good old days. Just read here about Hosea's day. That's the past. It wasn't better. It's worse, in fact, than what we're currently living in. There are no good old days. The world has not stopped being in desperate need of a Savior since the days of Adam and Eve. Thankfully, the promise of a Savior has also been given since those days as well. And this is the promise that we have. The message of Jesus is one that we have been given. And so what do we do with that message, brothers and sisters in Christ? brings us to the second point, loving with a salvation message. Verse 1, again, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. This is important. 
This reminds us that this book is a collection of the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. This isn't Hosea's musings on a changing world, but this is God's word to a wayward people through his instrument, Hosea. During Hosea's ministry, there are going to be lots of conflicting views about what is best for Israel. Imagine the tension when the leaders of Israel started to decide to pay tribute to Assyria. Should we do this? It's going to completely destroy our economy, but we want to remain Israel, right? Should we pay them so that they won't come in and destroy us? Not only tribute that's going to come with that, but also this influx of Assyrian gods and cultural distinctives that were decidedly not Jewish, decidedly not the God of the Bible. There was this constant struggle for power in the northern kingdom, and in the years of Hosea's ministry, he would see seven different rulers, including Jeroboam. And as I said earlier, four of those came to power because they assassinated the former king. Some of these kings get like three sentences in that book. There's a constant upheaval, constant political corruption. With that, the people suffered. They longed for the days when things would be seemingly better under another king. Maybe this one won't be evil in the eyes of the Lord. Maybe this one will bring us back to a time of prosperity. Does this sound familiar at all? I remember when I was a kid, things seemed to be so much better. I was born in 1978, grew up in the 80s and 90s, and things seemed really good. And then I since have learned some things and learned to read, and I read about the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I realized that those times weren't all that great. It's not as if we woke up, brothers and sisters in Christ, in 2020 and realized that things were bad and politicians started being corrupt. It's not as if all of a sudden we had this great need to change. Their promises still aren't coming true all these years later, yet we continue to place our faith in them as if they are the real answer. And where does the church find itself, sadly, Right in the middle of all of that, trying to find the answer in some man in Washington. Doesn't make a lot of sense. The word that we have from the Lord is no different than the word that Hosea had in his day. In fact, it's the same words. It's the exact same words, in fact, that Hosea was given all of those hundreds of years ago. We still have these words. He's not giving us new words because he hasn't changed his mind. We don't worship a God that changes. He doesn't wake up each day wondering how he ought to change his policies in order to satisfy his changing electorate. He is the God of the universe. That is not going to change. His word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word to us in Hosea is very clear, thankfully. We're going to skip ahead a little bit, but that's okay. Look with me at verses 10 and 11, Hosea chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. 
and the children of Judah and the children of Israel, these two separate kingdoms, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the, from the land the great, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Again, I know that this is borrowing from another day, but it's, this is the overarching theme of the book. Not only is the overarching theme of the book of Hosea, but it's the overarching theme of the Bible that God would have a people for himself and that those people would be taken out of whoredom and made into a kingdom of priests. And this should be something that is beyond our comprehension. We have difficulty loving each other sometimes just because those feelings fade. Those feelings that we have for one another change. We'll go to great lengths even to reestablish those feelings. Somehow like reaching back into the past and bringing them forward as if we could somehow harvest those feelings that we have for each other. Sadly, for, for many, when the feeling fades, they just move on. We've done the same thing with our God. As we long for the days when our faith was fresh and new, we felt so alive in Christ, we're desperate to find a book or a conference or some kind of new spiritual discipline that will help us to feel that way again. All the while, our Father has never stopped loving us at 100%. Because his love for us isn't built upon how he feels for us for each day today. It's built upon himself. He so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him could have everlasting life. And that promise isn't built on feelings either. It's built upon the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. And this is the message of Hosea. It's the message that hasn't changed for us at all today, brothers and sisters. How do we love God? Do we search for feelings? Or do we rest upon his commitment to us? How do we love one another? Do we flake on our commitments? Wander around until we find people that will serve us? Or do we serve with humility and gratitude? How do we love the world? Do we love them with biting memes and sarcasm? Praying for them out of one side of our mouth while wishing their destruction out of the other? Even while we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us. It's the kind of love that he shows for us while we were in whoredom. He came after us, made us alive, and set our feet upon the rock which is Jesus Christ our Lord. As we walk through this book, our commitments of love to God, to each other, to the world are going to be challenged, as well they should be. We don't know what happened to Hosea after the fall of his country, the one that he loved, but we have his words for us here, and we know that he was a faithful messenger of God even in the most difficult times. Times aren't going to get easier, they don't. They don't get any easier. We long for the time that Jesus will come back and right everything. But until then, what are we going to do? How will we fare? Will we falter as we see one bad Savior after another fail to live up to their promises? 
Or will we be strengthened in our faith as we rest upon the promise of Jesus, whose faith never falters, whose love for us is always more than we can imagine and so much more than we deserve? Believers in Christ, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Rest in the love that Jesus has for us. Give that love to others. If you're hearing this message for the first time, this idea that you should believe in Jesus Christ, it's because God is probably working on you as we speak. He's opened up your heart to tell you that there is no other Savior. While the economy and political climate of our country may be in jeopardy, God's hold on the world is absolutely unshakable. And the way to him is completely unchanged. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. In conclusion, this book is going to be challenging. I encourage you to read ahead each week. To read, it's only 14 chapters and they're not very long. Read ahead each week. In fact, maybe just read the whole book each week to help you to gain that context as we come together. Even though the book is going to be challenging, one thing that we can always rest upon is God's commitment to us in Christ, and we're going to see that over and over in this book. As we come face to face with our own commitments to Him, let us rest upon the righteousness of Christ. Let us love God and our neighbor, and let us show this love by telling them about Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we consider the words that we read today, as we consider the words of the rest of this book, Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider our commitments to you. Thankfully, they're not based upon how I feel each day, but they're based upon you and your promises, which are unchanged. Lord, help me to rest in Christ. Help us to know the peace that we have in Christ our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.